raise your hand if you want to live to be 100 years old. Welcome to the Mind Ramp Podcast, where you'll find plain English translations of evidence-based good news about your brain. I'm Roger Anningson, and with my buddy Michael C. Patterson, we'll be guiding you through this new frontier of applied brain science. We're launching our Mind Ramp podcast with an overarching theme of all longevity, a word that captures the concept of living long and living well. So, Roger, we, we do this shtick when we're doing live presentations where we um, uh, ask people to raise their hands if they want to be 100 years old. And we've actually ramped that up now to 120 years old. So let's... Yeah, but, Michael, I remember yeah. when you first proposed this and I said, okay. And it was, how, do you want to live to be 100? And I thought, wait a minute, no hands are going to go up because people don't understand the potential of actually living a longer life uh, and wanting to live. So, you know, well, that's changed, happened. hasn't it? I mean, more yeah. people are living to be 100 now these days, so it's not so uncommon. Well, and because we have different expectations about aging, all of us have different expectations. The audiences that we've dealt with over the decade, we've worked together with general audiences, don't have the facts. And the facts they have aren't really facts. Those are what they learned in the dark ages of neuroscience in the 1980s and 1990s. Right. Wait. Now, wait. Don't give it away. Let me. I want to do this with the audience and have oh, them play okay. along. So, oh, I see. Those of you out there in listening land, wherever you are, raise your hand if you want to live to be a hundred years old. Now, obviously, we can't see you, but um, okay. What we've and as we ask questions, I want them to be courageously honest. Mm -hmm. Those two words we use that in our college classes. Be honest about your brain's health and what you want to do with it in your life because you only got one brain, you only have one life. So be honest. Do you want to live to be 100? And what we generally find when we do this with live audiences is that about half of the people will say, yeah, sure, they'll kind of raise their hand. The other half are shaking their heads and no way, no, I do not want to live to be 100 years old. And this gives us the, the opportunity, as Roger started to do, to talk about the different attitudes about aging. Uh, what is it that makes you say, no, I don't want to live to be 100 years old? And part of it, obviously, is that the prospect of living that long, what people are looking forward to is not, oh, happy-go-lucky life of uh, increased maturity and fun and happiness. What they're looking forward to or what they're imagining is increased years of decline and, and disease and pain and suffering and loss. Oh, and Michael, so slow down. The, the list yeah. goes on and on. Illness and frailty. Stop me, please. Don't let me go here. Yeah, but I think that's what happens. I mean, the, the, that's the attitude that prevents people from saying, no, I don't want to live that. And if longevity does mean increased pain and suffering, well, well no, nobody would want that. But what we do then is we come back and we say, after we've talked about this a little bit, how about if we could we used to say guarantee 
that you would have quality of life. And Rogers made me pull back a little bit yeah, on that. Because it's a two-way street. If you guarantee something, then we're responsible for it. But what we have is a partnership that we will guarantee that the information that we deliver to your brain is going to be evidence-based and we do the best we can to stay current. And we believe we've got a method, we call it the mind wrap method, that once you learn the facts, you'll make the decision. So we can guarantee that you'll have a chance, but you have to be the one to actually do the work. Because Michael, as we've said, you can't outsource your brain's future. No matter how wealthy you might think you are, you have to do it yourself. And if you do it yourself, if you get to the point where you can prevent cognitive decline, you can prevent or at least slow the onset of dementia, if you can ramp up the, the overall quality of your life, why wouldn't you want to live to be 100 if you can have a good life while you're doing it? And people in the field talk about this as an increased life uh, health span already. It's not just a lifespan, but it's an increased span in which you are healthy and happy and enjoying life. So yes, lifespan's a number, the number of years you live, whereas health span is the quality of the life you live. And what we want is to have both of those go the same distance. Yeah. And this is what the Qualongevity podcast is really about, as Roger was saying, we will go through all of the different steps, all of the pieces that will help you figure this out. So if you adopt this and if you follow through and can have quality of life, let's try it again. Raise your hand. If you think you could achieve quality of life, would you want to live to be 100 or even 110? Or even 120. We both have to tell you that later in our podcast, we'll tell you why we are so confident that once you learn the facts, you might start raising your hand at 110 and at 120. Roger, in the, in the context of talking about qualongevity, we've got these two aspects of it. One is quality of life. And the other is longevity. We want quality of life across a long lifespan. And um, let's focus first on, on longevity. We are clearly living longer lives. More and more of us are living longer and longer lives. That's right. We just look at the numbers. The numbers speak for themselves. Yeah. Back in the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, there was an increase in life expectancy hard word to say, expectancy. Um, but it was driven by things like increased sanitation, better housing, better education. Um, and what it did was, um, it, it wasn't that people couldn't live to, to old ages, it's just that people were dying earlier. They were dying, many more people were dying in childhood. They got sick before they could get old. But that has improved dramatically by getting rid of uh, infections. So we are living longer and longer. And you've got some wonderful examples of some, some long-lived people. You want to tell us I about sure them? Do. And one stage I want to set for what we're going to talk about with people that might be called outliers, the ones that actually lived past 100 and were vigorous in their lives, is that with this longer life expectancy and the sheer numbers of people, 
we have to recognize that older people over the age of 65 were simply not studied back in the mid 19th and 20th century. They weren't studied because, hey, they're going to die anyway. So why put funding into studying how people age? And it wasn't until the decade of the brain, the 90s, that there was even a recognition of maybe we need to really take a look at this. So we've got three to talk about, and we'll do a deeper dive in later podcasts. But Sarah Knaus, Sarah is from Pennsylvania. She is the all-time American champion. We're going to talk about Walter Bruning from Montana. He's the all-time champion for men. This is a race that they've so far crossed the finish line of 115 years old for Walter and Sarah she was 119 years old. And when you get to be 100, Michael, you'll be able to answer the question any way you want on what are your secrets? What are your secrets of aging? No, everybody has a secret of aging. Or more than one. Some oh, have yeah. a few. Walter had three. He said whiskey, wild women, and a great sense of humor. Oh, can I borrow uh, Walter's uh, secrets. I think those are pretty good. Okay. <laughs> he, he always said that with a huge grin. Now, yeah. Sarah, she had three that we really can be informed by her three. Her three are knitting, and that's hand eye coordination, brain body coordination. Right. She watched golf every weekend on TV. She was huh. a golf fan. And that's interesting because things change. There's a different leader. She watched the leaderboard. She had favorites. She was engaged with changing life. And the third was she said that her secrets also included chocolate turtles, the, tur oh, yeah. the candy. Uh, she ate two per day and her doctors thought as long as she looks forward to those turtles, it's not going to hurt. But the all-time champion, the world champion is from France. And you and I really like all the information about Madame Jean Calment. Right. Yeah, she's fascinating. And, and one of the things that you, you say about these guys, which I really like, is pointing out that these are members of our own species. So if they can do it, it is possible. It shows the possibility of our species to live uh, to 120 years old. That's the definable lifespan. So it's the psychology of possibility, as Ellen Langer uh, calls it. Exactly. And remember that these three lived in a time in which the lifespan or life expectancy was sh much shorter than it is now. So just think of how many people have the benefit of an entire lifetime of doing what they were doing. So we think that that barrier of Madame Jean Calment isn't a barrier at all. It's just simply that's the line that we plan to have people cross over and again in the near future. She lived to be 122 and a half. There's a pretty vigorous debate in the field of aging about that lifespan, whether that 120 is ever going to change. And there are those who say, no, that's that's about it, no matter what. And there are others who are saying, no, as the science advances, we are going to figure out more and more of what uh, starts to erode the, the human body and we're gonna be able to fix it. So that's gonna expand uh, forever. 
it's going to get way out there. So the idea of a real longevity, increased longevity, is is uh, one that's possible. Well, and by possible, we've got the three examples, but let's go further. What if we could find the pockets on Earth that had people who were living over 100 years, we'll call it successfully, because they weren't in a decline. They were still robust and enjoying life and had purpose and that happened, and that happened in the early 2000s when Dan Buettner, uh, with the help of National Geographic and other foundations, circled the globe searching for places on Earth that there were pockets of our species who were living lives that we could learn from. The longest living groups of people were designated as blue zones. And when his blue zone project was finished, using scientific methods to find out what they ate, what they did during the day, they ended up with five blue zones. Yeah, I'm glad you you went there. I was going, my mind was going the same place when I was thinking about the secrets that Sarah Knauss and Walter Bruning, uh, their secrets may or may not actually have been why they lived long, but Butner in the Blue Zones actually did more scientific research and finding out specifically what was it about these populations that were keeping them uh, living long and having quality of life and where were the common things that they uh, found so right and by doing that using the scientific method of overlapping with all five of these areas and they studied other areas that didn't qualify because the people weren't old enough one of the most important things they did was to use scientific methods and that's that has sustained the blue zone project to to this day and it's expanding and in a in a later episode we'll get into some deep uh information about the blue zones and how important it is for those five blue zones to be studied because those are pockets of our species and we can learn from them yeah and the the things that butner found about the commonalities of why they live long and live well are pretty close to our eight cogwheels the essential cogwheel. So as Roger says, we'll go over uh, both of those to a greater extent in upcoming podcasts. Okay, so we talked about longevity as the one component of qualongevity. Let's talk about quality of life now. What does quality of life mean? And does it mean a single thing, Michael, or do you think it means something different to every single human being? Well, that's a good question. I tend to think it means something different to every single human being. And then uh, people who discuss quality of life Talk about either happiness, you know, is it happiness? Is that what we're talking about? Is it just happiness? Or does it also get into um, things like meaning and purpose and fulfillment? And I think it does. But if we stay on happiness as one of the overarching words to get to that quality of life that you'll self-define, let's let's just think about how often we've got the word happiness used generally, but importantly, and you go back to the Constitution. The pursuit of what? It's happiness. Yeah, and there's a fascinating article I read. I can't remember the guy's name. I'll, I'll try to find it. But he made the point that um, 
this was a relatively new idea, the idea that people could be happy and could actually pursue happiness. It was part of enlightenment thinking, in fact. He said previous to that, nobody had any sort of pretensions of being happy. Uh, that wasn't something you, you were just kind of trying to survive. Maybe if you were the king or the queen, you might be happy, you know, but. Uh, well, and may, maybe that's the separation that the pursuit is what is guaranteed. That's the right, the pursuit of it, not the guarantee you'll get there, but it's an individual right to pursue that. And if only the king and, and whoever he said could pursue it, maybe this is how it frees up people to actually get their own pathway, design their own future. Yeah, and also there's the point that you bring up that happiness is probably not a destination. You don't, good point. You know, you don't get there and say, "Okay, great, I got it, I'm happy now." It's, it's in the doing. It's how you live your life that that brings happiness and brings meaning and purpose. Um, Very and, nice. And positive psychology, relatively new field of positive psychology, has really begun studying happiness and and uh, people didn't haven't studied happiness previously part of this is is the whole deal with positive psychology that um differentiates itself and we were trying to figure out the term earlier do we call it standard uh, psychology classic psychology negative psychology but the classic psychology focused on what was wrong with people and how they were, you know, sort of not functioning properly and trying to get them back to where they are functioning properly. The, the revelation uh, about uh, positive psychology is that even if you're able to get people out of depression, we don't know how to be happy naturally. We have to learn how to be happy. We have to cultivate happiness. And I've heard it described this way, Michael, that in the, I'll call it traditional psychology, that's a fair term. In traditional mm -hmm. psychology, the goal that the trained psychologists had was to take someone who is unhappy and help them get to not unhappy. Right. Well, wait a minute. Isn't there something beyond not unhappy? And that is to actually move up to a happiness level. And if right. the happiness level is achieved, and there is a decline in happiness, you've at least got that, that cushion that you're beyond just not being unhappy. Languishing, I think, is the term that the psychologists call this sort of limbo in between not happy and happy. You're just yeah, that, languishing. That's a good one, yep. Yep, so, so the question here is, what is quality of life? And like Roger is indicating, I think, you know, we could go and investigate things that in general make all human beings uh, feel better and feel more fulfilled. I mean, there are things that we all are programmed to like, like sweetness. We all love the, the taste of sweetness. We all long for uh, affection and, and uh, closeness with other people. And those are the things that tend to make us happy. But we also have very personal tastes. Uh, so it's an important that we look at, or that you look at, honestly, what is really going to make you happy and give you meaning and purpose. In our playbook, we have lots of exercises like this where you can examine different aspects of 
fulfillment and meaning and purpose and happiness and so on, and figure out in greater detail what actually makes you feel good, what actually makes you feel relevant, uh, so that then you can cultivate those. And Michael, within the playbook, uh, the design is to have that something that you are taking control of, that you're courageously honest when you put down what makes you happy. You make notes today and a week later you think of something. So filling in the blanks isn't just a one-time quiz or a test or an essay. It's an evolutionary method for you to go in and figure out where you are, get a baseline and what you could be. What made you happy in the past can guide you and inform you of what might make you happy as you age. So to wrap up, the question we might ask ourselves is, what does quality of life mean for me? What will make my late life years worth living? And even more important, how am I going to create that level of happiness, meaning, and purpose as I move forward? The MindRamp podcasts will help you figure out answers to these important questions. Well, we're excited that you're listening and caring for your precious brain and mind. Now, remember, you can find out more about MindRamp at our website, M-I-N-D-R-A-M-P dot O-R-G. And if you want some help and guidance in protecting your brain or optimizing the power of your mind, you can sign up for a free consultation. Look for it on the website. 